0: Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Man, I said last week, I love that bumper. I just love that thing. You know, I'm being personally challenged by this series And I I can't say whether you are or not, but uh, those who teach in any way know that sometimes we're just challenged by our own material. You're you're asked to know: um, Do you really know what you're talking about? That's one of the the big things that we wonder whenever we're teaching. Those of you who are teachers, you know what I'm saying. And then um, beyond that, we, we when we're teaching about something that is deeply held within us, we ask: Are we really living this out? That is, do we really believe this? Because I find myself as caught up in the moment sometimes as you do and everybody else does, and not very cognizant that I am living forever from now on. When I wrote that tagline uh, working on the sermon series, something just struck me about the power of that line. I I love the notion of eternal, but the notion of living forever from now on. So I want to help you understand biblically precisely what we're talking about here. And and I want to tell you this is thoroughly biblical. I mean, I I cannot be more biblical than I am being right now about what it means to live in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, what it means to be new creatures from now on, and what it means to prefigure a new heaven and a new earth. And we're all familiar with detours. I'm sure you uh, you see them from time to time. Around here, it's always road work that creates a, a detour. Um, You know, certain roads are just changing all the time. If you drive uh, the 66 corridor lately, it's different every day. You just don't know what you're going to find, where you're going to be sent off to the side. I remember when the mixing bowl was being worked on down in Springfield. I've been here long enough for that. Some of you have too. What a mess that was. Just these constant detours. You never knew what to expect every time you got to it. Recently, we're detoured sometimes because of floodwaters. You know, you you get to a place and you got to go around it. And I'm almost never taking a trip anywhere of any length or any distance where some road is not being altered or changed. Something hasn't happened and I have to detour around and, you know, there goes your time. You can just watch it. If you guys use Waze, do you do this? I I use Waze even when I know where I'm going and uh, I do it for several reasons that we won't talk all about. But uh, one of them is I like to see how my actual trip compares with that number at the bottom. And unlike Google Maps, Waze adjusts to how you drive. So if you are a speed demon, Waze knows that you are. It understands your habits and it estimates how long it's going to take you to get from point A to point B. I was just reading something about this the other day, but I still like to try to beat that number. Am I the only one out there uh, in here? Do you like to try to beat this number? Is that a game that you play? But you know, if you're on a long trip these days, you almost never do. So have you ever, have you ever been taking the trip and you hit the detour, or the traffic jam or whatever, and that number just starts to creep up and your blood pressure starts to rise? And I'll say to my wife, well, there it goes. We're gonna be 15 minutes later than we were supposed to be. She, she loves this game. She'll go, when were we supposed to be there? Look, it said so right there. It's false, it's wrong. So there are these intentional detours also, these things we design to do. So maybe we're on a trip and there's this, this farm we always wanted to stop at. We've done that. And so we, we sort of design it in and it's kind of sorta on the way. Or you have you ever made a, a pretty big detour to go to a restaurant you wanted to eat at or a place that you remember? something that is in your memory bank that you want to repeat or how about going out of your way to see family for years when we drove to the beach we would take a longer circuitous route because my grandmother lived in Lumberton North Carolina so we would always go and come through Lumberton which if you've ever been to Lumberton doesn't make any sense at all just to see my grandmother it was a designed detour it was because there was more to the trip than just getting from point A to point B. It's because the ultimate destination was something more than a physical location. And then there are the detours you make because your spouse or friend calls you and asks you to do something. So Debbie and I have a game that we, uh, I think we both enjoy it. I'm not sure she does, I do. So she, she will say to me, she constantly, before she asks me to do something, she'll say, would you do me a favor? Do you guys do this? I don't know why she does this, because I'm going to have to do whatever it is she's talking about. I know that. I mean, I recognize that She say, like, would you do me a favor? And I always respond exactly the same way. And it's very irritating to her, but fun for me. And I respond and go, well, that depends on what it is. Then we'll have a discussion. The discussion goes like this. Why do you always say that? Because it's true. Well, well how is it true? Well, if you ask me to, to drive off a cliff, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to ask you to drive off the cliff. How do I know? You haven't told me yet. Okay, whatever. Would you stop on your way home and get a loaf of bread? Okay now I'm just going to tell you on my way home for example from here to my house there is no grocery store. So any picking up of anything is going to involve a detour. I'm going to have to go out of my way. You happen to ask me at 5:15 the traffic's really heavy. I'm going to add 15 minutes to the trip. So I know this. So the game continues. So I go, "Well, there's not a loaf of bread on my way home." She says, "Well, Make one. Make a way that makes it work because because this is what needs to be accomplished. So I'm going to talk about detours today that go through water. I'm going to talk about a detour that I think you and I can take that's not easy. It may be the hardest detour of our life. And it is the detour to eternity. It is the choice that we make to be on a different pathway a different road, even though it will be more circuitous and even though sometimes it will be more difficult and even though it will be incredibly countercultural and those around us might not understand it and even though it will, at the end of the day, have been a difficult journey, we make this detour because it's the detour to life. It is the detour to meaning. And the story we think about today is a detour like that. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here because I keep saying the resurrection changes everything. I have a new book out with my uh, good friend Ross Clifford. It, this edition, we're doing two editions, this edition is a shorter accessible version for the church. It's called Rise. If you have to happen to pick it up, I swear you can read it in a day. It's an easy read. But it is a complex theology that really is not difficult to understand. And the theology goes like this. There is a point of creation where God designs and creates this this beautiful thing we are a part of, but this complex and difficult thing we're a part of. And then there is a fall. And in the fall, there's a listing that God makes. It's not a punishment section in Genesis 3. It's a section where God says, because of your rebellion, this is what's going to happen. And he lists off this set of things and then there's this struggle of humanity to catch up to God, to figure out how to reconnect to him. And God gives the law to, to give them some idea of the framework of the design he had for us as eternal creatures, what his, in, his initial intention was for our righteousness, for our relationship to him, our right relationship to him. And, and we fail again and again and again still, but... In this case, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, they, they fail again and again to, to abide by the covenant. And, and when they break the covenant, God chastens them. And we just studied that. The Babylonian captivity is one good example of that. He does it for their good, not for their punishment. He does it to draw them back to him and they are chastened and they come back and there, there is this struggle to recover the relationship with God and then over time it's taken for granted because this is human nature and that way is lost again and they go off the rails again and God intervenes again and finally there is the intervention in time but this intervention the Bible presents as something above time and space, something that is eternal about the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. And he sends his son to the world. John so beautifully captures it in chapter one as the word made flesh, as God's son incarnate on earth. And he does this by design from the beginning of time, not waking up one morning and deciding to do it. And he he sends Jesus and Jesus teaches us the heart and the spirit of the law. He teaches us what God is really after. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That kind of captures it, but there's a lot more to it. And then Jesus is rejected because people can't understand pure love. They just can't can't get it. And so he's crucified. And in the crucifixion, there is a price that is paid for our sin. By God's design, there's a price that is paid so that you and I can be completely and fully forgiven. And then Jesus rises, and in rising, not only does he come to life, but he prefigures our own resurrection from the dead and a walk to a new heaven and a new earth. And when Jesus rises, the last movement of of God's creation redemption happens. The last movement of that happens, and from then on, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is spoken of as a portrait of the new heaven and the new earth. That's what we're supposed to be. And it's a tall order, but the church is supposed to prefigure what the new heaven and the new earth will look like when we walk to it. And too often we don't because, because we're broken. And, and, and because we get mixed up about what's really important and because we get lost in the moment and we lose sight of eternity. And when that happens, we have to re- remember how Jesus walked into that room with the doors closed with his apostles and breathed on them an act of recreation, like breathing into the dust of the ground that God did. And he said, receive now the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the keeper of this new thing that is happening in us, the recreator of us. And it's a process, which we call at Columbia, whole life discipleship. Becoming these eternal creatures, again. uh, Learning what we've forgotten, what we've lost. So the question becomes for us, if God shows us a vision of what the new heaven and the new earth looks like, On earth as it is in heaven, heaven in that passage does not represent a place. It represents eternity. So on earth as it is in heaven, if God shows us a picture, then our job is against all the norms of our culture to try to live into that vision of of what eternity looks like, to try to become eternal creatures. I swear to you, Chris and I did not plan this. Sometimes, sometimes I get blown away by this stuff, but, you know, Chris just read a scripture from Revelation. My personal Bible reading over the last month has been in the book of Revelation, which is a complicated book, as Chris said, and there's a lot you can't kind of decipher. But there's a lot you can, and what you can is every time there's a picture or a vision of the new heaven and the new earth, that vision makes sense, <clears throat> So this is a portion of what Chris read. I I promise you, we didn't talk to each other about this at all. And so God must intend for you to hear it. So in Revelation chapter 7, after the seals are broken and the lamb is on the throne and the worship is happening of of this wedding feast of God God and his church, Christ and his church. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we read, After this I looked up, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. The word people is the word we translate as ethnicity. Every ethnicity. And every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing all of them white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that's the picture of New Heaven and New Earth worship. This is the birth birthday of new heaven and new earth. So if someday in our experience of things, if, if somewhere you and I as eternal creatures are going to be resurrected to this, then we look at that and we say, as the church of Jesus Christ in our day, we have to start living that now. Forever, from now on. That is that people should be able to look at us and say, that's what I want my eternity to look like. They should look at us and be able to say, that's life. That is truly life. It's a tall order. Do you agree with me? It's a really tall order. Because living into that is hard. You know, we have this uh, this big baptism service coming up in two weeks. And if you haven't been baptized, it's such a great opportunity. And for those of you who are out there in uh, virtual land and you haven't come back to worship yet, this is an outdoor service. You should plan to be there because you I'm just going to tell you, something starts to seep out of you if you're not worshiping in person with people. I, I, I can't quite explain what happens, but I've learned it in the last little while. And this baptism service to me is a thing of beauty. We started doing it some years ago. We call it All Columbia Baptism. And it's all the congregations of Columbia in all their languages from all the nations in all the languages they speak coming together in this one service. And look, I love the baptism, but there is something that happens for me when I stand up on a platform and look out over that audience and see the diversity of God's people in Christ church. And I think to myself every time, this is how the new heaven and the new earth is going to look. This is it. It's not going to look like most churches do, where people tribalize and pull themselves off into little groups. It is going to be diversely expressive of God's beauty because God's beauty is all about contrasts and diversity. It it, it truly is. God must love it because he created a lot of it. A lot of quirky stuff and a lot of quirky people like me. And when I look out at that, I think to myself, this is what we're supposed to be, but it is really difficult to accomplish because we're stuck in the moment and because we have our own impressions and because we are being discipled by the world and not the Word. Do you understand what it is to be discipled by the world? Look, I'm fully aware that you get 40 minutes give or take from me once a week and you don't come every week and you don't listen every week and therefore probably more like twice or three times a month. And that pales in comparison to the amount of time you are being discipled by Newsmax or MSNBC or Facebook or Instagram or whatever your favorite poison is. And those medias, by design, are bombarding you with things that cause you to believe that what you already think is true really is and the way they do it, and this is really fascinating, but I really worry about these companies like Facebook, Google, et cetera. I'll say it out loud because they have mastered the art for profit of engaging you and the way they engage you is by sending you only two kinds of people and the first kind of people are people who absolutely agree with you and about 80% of the people you receive by their algorithm are gonna be that and so you're gonna become convinced this is right and true and noble what I already think is true about other people about whatever issue this is right and true and I'm right and, and others are wrong and so just to make sure that you stay engaged they're going to send you about 20 percent of people who are diametrically opposed with you to you so you guys can beat up on each other online because it's so much fun like you're ever going to change anybody's opinion on social media. You're not. You're not going to talk anybody out of anything or into anything on social media. By design, it's not going to happen because the people that are being sent to you are not the people who are trying to decide. They're the ones that either agree with you or rapidly disagree with you. And before you know it, you're caught in a trap. And here's the trap. The culture is discipling you. It is telling you who you are and who you should be in the moment, in time and space, and then you walk into church and your expectation is that the pastor should affirm what you've already decided from that discipling is right. And that should bother us. It should trouble us for a couple of reasons. One thing is don't, don't even start to think for a second that the balkanization that we're seeing in our culture is going to disappear in your lifetime. It will not. It is only going to get worse institutions are declining, and expressions of tribalism are therefore increasing. This is that simple. And so it's just going to continue to be this way. So we're going to live in a world that's torn like it is. We're going to live there for the rest of our lives. Even your children are probably not going to inherit in any way, shape, or form a world that is any less balkanized or broken apart than ours is right now. But the thing that should bother us more is that we're no different in the church of Jesus. That we don't come to the word of God and look at passages like this and decide, okay, if this is God's design, then I will try to figure out how to live into it. And that's what it means to live forever from now on. It means to make our decisions about how we will live and how we will treat other people based on what God is designing us to inherit forever. Because friends, Everything I said is kind of sad, except that our lives don't really last that long on earth. You're not really going to be here very long. You're just passing through. In fact, I would suggest to you the world is a detour. And your eternal destiny is the real path. Now the reason I'm talking about detour here is because Jesus himself made one and it's a fascinating one. It's a really fascinating one. So before I read the passage, let me sort of prepare you for it by letting you take a look at this map very briefly. And this map's fascinating. If you ever go with me to the Holy Land, you will make the journey. Actually, you'll go from Capernaum to Jerusalem, not the other way around. And we'll go down the Jordan River Valley for the most part because that's where the easy pathway is. If you were a Jew in Jesus' day, the way you got from Jerusalem to Capernaum, which is where Jesus was headed, was to go over as you would to the river valley where the land is flat And to move up the river, it was by far the quickest way to get there. And you would have avoided Samaria at all cost because Samaria was the land of the dirty half-breed people. This is why the power of the Good Samaritan is such in Jesus' story. Because the Good Samaritan was someone that the Jewish man who was rescued would have hated before that happened. Jews stayed as far away as they could from the Samaritans and their infiltrated culture and their infiltrated worship. So for two reasons, Jesus should have gone over to the Jordan River Valley and moved up to Capernaum, it would have been much faster. It was the straight route, if there was a straight route. It avoided the mountains that were in Samaria and Sychar, and it avoided people he shouldn't have been around. So for multiple reasons, that's how Jesus should have gone. And yet the story we're about to read says that Jesus wanted to get to Galilee from Jerusalem, so he had to travel through Samaria which is akin to saying that Jim has to detour to the grocery store to get a loaf of bread. You have to do it. There was a reason bigger than what was necessitated by the map. There was a reason bigger than what was necessitated by Jesus getting from point A to point B, and that reason was that Jesus was not on a journey to Galilee. He was always on a journey to eternity. And Eternity, in this case, went through Sicker. Sicker is the place where Jacob's well is. It's right on the edge of Samaria. You saw it on the map just a moment ago. And now that you know that Jesus was headed to eternity, we can look at this section of the Gospel of John as I've been teaching, and we can see this magnificent story of the woman at the well. All of you know this story, right? I mean, it's famous. I, 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 I'm just, I'm gonna guess that most people who don't, know anything about Jesus to speak of or the Bible or the church, know the story of the woman at the well. So it's a pretty long story, but I think you're gonna wanna read it all. John chapter four, verses three through 28. So Jesus left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee and he had to go through Samaria. Uh, Again, what? No, he did not have to go through Samaria unless the reason was something other than what the journey itself required. He had to detour. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which is near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was and is there, which you can still see. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. That was about noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone into town to buy some food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew? And I am a Samaritan woman? How can you ask me for a drink? If this were a Dateline episode, I don't know if you guys ever watched that, but I'm amused by it sometimes, the voice, the voice. This is a Dateline episode. Jesus not only is talking to a Samaritan, but to a Samaritan woman who is going to turn out to be a woman of relatively ill repute. And so if this were a Dateline episode, this is the point at which you go, oh my, oh my. This is scandalous. This this jeopardizes everything about Jesus' prophetic status. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong woman if his journey is really intended to be one that is safe from point A to point B. But if he's headed to eternity, then this encounter is important. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her if you knew the gift of God and who it is that ask you for a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water it's a crazy response to the woman by the way it completely changes the transaction into a transformation immediately sir the woman said you have nothing to draw with and this well is drink is is deep see how she's stuck in the moment where can you get this living water Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up. This is why we're reading this story to what? Are you reading? To eternal life. A spring welling up within them to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water in the middle of the hot day so I can stay away from the, woman who, the women who hate me and gossip about me. And he told her, why don't you go call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she replied, and Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband, which she knew, by the way. The fact is, you have five, had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, can we stop here and see what we're looking at? What is Jesus talking about? This division, this tribal division that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews was akin to other ethnic divisions and national divisions we see in our own day. There was a prejudice, a racism from one to the other and back across. There was a hatred that each of them had for the other. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the haughty Jews. They couldn't stand each other. So the woman points out to Jesus, are you aware, sir, that this is not the way the world works? Don't you understand that Sunday is the most segregated hour? Although she was talking about Saturday in this case. Don't you get it? You guys worship at that temple thing, and we worship on this mountain, and we're just never going to see eye to eye. One of us is right, and one of us is wrong. And she's essentially saying, I know I'm right. You know you're right. They've been discipled by their cultures. They've come to understand Jesus as being geolocated. Each of them believed that God favored them for different reasons, and you can look up the history of this yourself because it's fascinating. And Jesus will have none of it. And he says the time is coming and now is when the true worshipers of God will worship him in the spirit and in truth. Could you tell me what is that time? It is the new heaven and the new earth. It is Revelation 7. That's what it is. But Jesus says that time is already beginning now. And so what he is saying is all of these divisions that the culture imposes upon us, all of this garbage that we've bought into, it means nothing. And in essence, it is something that we are hiding behind. And because we are hiding behind it, we are not encountering the true spirit. And when we don't encounter the true spirit, we don't encounter truth. I mean eternal truth something that's bigger and more important than a lot of the stuff that we are allowing to divide us in this day and time as people have done since time began. Jesus is saying, this is the way it's gonna be someday. And then in essence, he's saying to the woman, why don't you start drinking it now? Why don't you start living forever from now on? The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. See what she's saying? She's saying, I know this is gonna be true somewhere in the future. Do you see what she's trying to do? This is what we do too. We say, yeah, Jim, I hear you. That new heaven and new earth stuff, that's really cool. And that's gonna be somewhere out there. And, and just trust me, some of you will say to me, trust me, some of the people who you think are gonna be there with us aren't gonna be there. I think you might wanna start worrying about whether you're gonna be there or not. I think I probably better spend my time worrying about whether I'm gonna be there or not. I hope everyone is there with us, don't you? the church exists to seek and to save the lost to leave the 99 and go seek the one I I hope my neighbors are all there I know some of them won't be it breaks my heart but when you get there it's going to shock you because it won't be much like what you've been discipled to live by the world so the woman says look First, there is this division. Jesus says, I'll have none of it, spirit and truth. And then she says, well, yeah, but the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, then then maybe that'll happen off in the future. I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, a Samaritan woman. But no one dared to ask, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Because we know better than to betray our prejudices, right? And then leaving her water jar because she didn't care about the need of the moment anymore, the woman went back to town and said to the people, this is awesome. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the disciple? I got to tell you, this one kind of amuses me, doesn't it, you? Because I'm not… <laughs> I've never gone to someone and they told me something about myself that I thought was secret and then I went home and went, Debbie, this is awesome. Somebody today told me the worst stuff I've ever done. It was so cool. But this woman had spent her life in hiddenness and Jesus saw her and he loved her for who she really was in all her brokenness, all her messiness and he offered her Of all people, this living water, he gave her the opportunity to live forever from now on. And this woman, she's every man and every woman, right? All of us broken people, unworthy of God's love, but receiving his forgiveness at the foot of the cross and being resurrected to new life, all of us receive that gift. And when we're able to say, let me tell you about the one who knows everything about me and loves me anyway, that is when you'll discover the power of the resurrection. That's when you'll know the power of Jesus. Let me show you something kind of cool here because you got to see it. There is a, a, a word connection here. That is all over the gospel of John. Most famously, it's in those seven sayings I was telling you about, like I am. We studied last week the bread of life. I told you that I was ego, I, me. This is it, ego, I, me, which means I am or I exist. Jesus says we're going to study some more of them too. I am the doorway that leads to eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life. But ego, I, me is all over the gospel of John. So that's not the only place. Those seven places are not the only place Jesus uses this phrase So what Jesus says to the woman is actually different than this. In John 4, 25 and 26 in the NIV, just a moment ago, we read the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he, which is a really convoluted way of translating the few Greek words of this passage. It's all these extra English words because this is what the Greek really says in John 4:26, in the J.E. Bauckham edition it says literally I am is the one speaking to you what's Jesus talking about here Whenever Jesus says, Ego a me, I am, he is saying, I am the eternal one. I depend on no one for my existence. It means I exist, is the one speaking to you right now. I was before time began, and I will be after time ends, and I am the resurrection and the life. I am the meaning of it all. I am your eternity. I am your doorway. I am your pathway to living forever from now on. So he's saying to the woman, Right here in front of you is your possibility to live forever from now on. I don't think it's that strange that water should be used in this instance to talk about this. To live in Christ is to live forever from now on. Do you like water? Just curious. I mean, it can, it can slake your thirst and it can drown you. There's nothing more ubiquitous on earth than water. Fresh water, harder to come by, but you and I are 75% water as we sit here right now. Yes, you take it in and yes, you release it, but you hold on to a lot of it. 75%. Water. Where our family's place is at the beach, there is a, a sign that's up over a window in the living room and it says, a waterfront view is not a matter of life and death. It is far more important than that. And that's a silly expression, but I can't tell you how many times I've sat on the front porch of that house and read scripture and prayed and processed life. Just tried to figure it out. There's a fountain in my backyard. It's just a little one, but I tend it every single day. Like shut it down. We're a little piece of the winter, which is getting shorter and shorter, but it's on the rest of the year. It's just a little fountain. I can go back there and sit there and listen to that fountain and somehow feel closer to God. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Maybe water doesn't do this to you. Since the beginning of the church, following Jesus' example, the way you come into the, Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ is to go through the water. It is the symbol of, of living forever from now on. It's the symbol of passing through a new perspective, a new understanding the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life now, living forever from now on. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he He elaborates on this idea. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christo, in the Greek, the new creation. Could you just say this with me? The new creation what? Oh, I I thought it was coming. No, has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Let me ask you to enter into uh, just a quick imagination experiment with me and let me close out with this. One of my favorite all-time authors is somebody you've never read, I'm pretty sure, and that author is uh, George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a 19th-century Scottish pastor, something of a mystic, if you know that tradition in Christianity. And when I when I I feel overwhelmed, sometimes I can read his writing, which is poetic, and it just washes over me so this is what I want you to do if you'll do it if you don't want to do it that's fine but I'd like you to close your eyes just close your eyes and listen to this what I ask is the truth of water is it that it is formed of hydrogen and oxygen but is it for the sake of the fact that hydrogen and oxygen combine to form water that the precious thing exists? Is pairing oxygen and hydrogen the divine idea of water? Or has God put the two together only that man might separate and find them out? Find for us what in this constitution of the two gases makes them fit and capable to be thus honored in forming the lovely thing And you will give us a revelation about more than water, namely about the God who made oxygen and hydrogen. There is no water in oxygen, there is no water in hydrogen. It comes bubbling fresh from the imagination of the living God, rushing from under the great white throne of the glacier. The very thought of it makes one gasp with an elemental joy no metaphysician can analyze. The water itself that dances and sings and slakes the wonderful thirst, symbol and picture of that thirst for which the woman of Samaria made her prayer to Jesus, this lovely thing itself whose very wetness is a delight to every inch of the human body in its embrace. This living thing which, if I might, I would have running through my room and babbling along my table, this water is its own self. It is its own truth. Therein it is a truth of God. Let him who would know the love of the maker become sorely thirsty and drink of the brook at his feet and then lift up his heart, not at that moment to the maker of oxygen and hydrogen, but to the inventor and mediator of thirst and water. Such a man might foresee a little of what the soul may find in God if he does not then become as a heart panting for the water brooks Let him go back to his science and its husks. As well may a man think to describe the joy of drinking by trying to scientifically analyze thirst and water as imagine that he has revealed anything about water by resolving it into its scientific elements. Let a man go to the hillside and let the brook sing to him till he loves it. And he will find himself far near the fountain of truth and the triumphal chariot of the chemist leading the shouting company of his half-comprehending followers. He will draw from the book the water of joyous tears and with them worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains. Of waters. Brothers and sisters, just just feel the water of God's spirit rushing through you. And welling up within you even to eternal life. Drink of it. And live forever from now on. Heavenly Father, thank you for water. Thank you for thirst. Thank you for the spirit and for truth and for our deep need and desire to be bathed in the waters of eternity that flow only from your throne of grace. Give us, O Lord, your spirit when we get lost in the moment and help us to live forever from now on in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Columbia, I love you. I'll see you soon. If I haven't seen you today, you go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Take care. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, We would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.